This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, January 6th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's passage comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is God's word. Praise be to God. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be, as was read in the first letter to the Thessalonians, so if you start at the beginning of the New Testament and start working your way to the right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, uh, and you will eventually get through his letters to 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to pray this morning, and uh, thank you for being here, uh, and ask the Lord to move me out of the way. So if you'd bow with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this day. It is the day that you have made and planned before the foundation of the world, so I pray that we will rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, I thank you that we are gathered here this morning. We are gathered here not to be entertained or to be primarily educated or informed, but Lord, we are here to praise you. We're here to praise you for who you are, to praise you for your greatness, for your goodness, for your generosity, and for your grace. We are undeserving, rebellious sinners who were chased down by you, redeemed by you, adopted by you, forgiven by you, and brought back into a relationship with you, a relationship that we broke, Lord. And so we are grateful. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We love because we have been loved. You have done all of the work through Your Son, Jesus Christ, to fix what was broken. And I pray, Lord, we will continue to lean on Christ as we are further restored into what and who You designed us to be. Lord, I thank You for what You have done in the life of this church and the people of this church. And yet, there's still much brokenness and much suffering that is occurring. I think of Susan Alps and her continued battle, Lord, with the brokenness of disease and just pray for You to encourage her, for You to strengthen her, for You to fill her with peace. But it is such a joy to see Your people be the tool for that. And so I thank You that You use the encouragement of Your people, the love of Your people to lift up the saints who are struggling are in those valleys But I thank you for these sermons being preached by those who are in the valleys like Susan and others. I pray you will continue to build, Lord, that kind of faith in this place. 
and through a love of one another, Lord, that you will not only uh, help us be a witness to the world, but you'll help us to endure the difficulties of this life. And this morning as we start a new year, and we consider and think about the unexpected things that we'll face this year, Lord, I pray we'll face them with faith. Whether it be great loss or great prosperity, I pray we will face them with faith. Whether it be great failure or success, I pray we will face them with faith. That we will lean upon You in times of great despair and difficulty and we will praise You and celebrate what You have done in times of great prosperity. Lord, move me out of the way this morning to do what you need to do through your word. You have us exactly where we're supposed to be on this day. And I thank you that who you desire to gather here is here. Soften the hearts and help them to be ready to receive your word. Lift the veil, Lord, and give us the words of conviction or comfort, whatever is needed. It is the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. So, what is back to the normal Christian life, which is maybe somewhat of an odd phrase, but that is what we have been studying as we've been working our way through the Apostle Paul's first letter to uh, the Thessalonians, an ancient uh, city that still exists today, uh, but at this time it was the home of a young church plant that at the time that Paul wrote this letter was probably a few months old. New believers, new gathering, um, and so this letter, uh, or through this letter, we've been seeking to understand what are the promises that God has given us in Christ and how are we supposed to live in response to those promises. And that's what Paul is trying to instruct these new believers in this new faith that they have uh, been found in. And ironically, we learn pretty quickly that the quote-unquote normal Christian life is pretty abnormal compared to the world. And that's because the Christian is not ruled by the normal authorities, namely intellect, emotion, or the experiences that we have. Those are kind of the competing authorities in our life to determine what is right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. The normal Christian or the Christian life is supposed to be governed by the very truth of God. And the very truth of God, the words breathed out by God, are the authority or the authority in life that shapes and interprets and even confronts what we think and what we feel and what we experience. Truth is to govern those things, not the other way around. That said, practically speaking, the actual experience of the average person is relatively the same for the Christian it is for the non-Christian just in life. And by that I mean there are joyful celebrations in both kinds of lives. There are difficult sufferings. There are even minor irritations that just come from what may, might be the monotony of daily life. The human experience is relatively common to us all. It's a common one. The essential difference lies in how one anticipates or perceives, or values, or responds to those experiences in life. That's the difference. Because many of the experiences are shared. Through the indwelling Holy Spirit, through the Spirit of God, 
God dwelling in the heart of the believer, the Christian possesses a different identity in Christ and a different loyalty to Christ and a different destiny that ends up with Christ. That's a governing truth and reality for the Christian. God defines who we are. God directs what we do. God determines where we will be now and in eternity. So our text today focuses on somewhat of a common experience. It's found in chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. It's a common experience that given enough time, every person who ever lives will face. And that is the grief of loss that comes from the death of a loved one. I'm sure most have experienced something like that. Um, if you have not yet, it's more than likely you will. Young or old, rich or poor, believer or unbeliever, there are few things in life more devastating than the loss of a loved one. Loss of this nature possesses a power like uh, none other. The power to shake us at our core. The power to change us. The power to break us. And, perhaps strangely, the power to build us. The wise teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, of which we'll begin to tackle sometime at the end of February, I believe, he wrote this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's a very powerful passage. Ecclesiastes is full of them. It's going to be an awesome study. But it, in summary, life is full of wonderful parties. had a great party last night with my little five-year-old. I made a unicorn cake. That's right, I made a unicorn cake. It was rad. Kind of looked like a unicorn. Kind of. Didn't taste half bad either. But life is full of parties. And life is full of funerals. Life is full of great joys and life is full of great loss. And the latter is perhaps the greatest unwanted teacher of all. The church of Thessalonica has experienced the loss of loved ones. Knowing the context of Thessalonica, it's possible that there are members of the church who have been martyred. Who have been killed for their faith. It would be somewhat early in terms of the great persecutions that came, but it would only take one or two for it to be troubling enough to shake them at their core. It's also possible that members of their church have simply died for any number of reasons. Either way, these new believers are asking a really honest question, what advantage does the Christian have over the non-Christian when it comes to death? Is there any advantage? These guys believe in Jesus, but their loved ones have died before Jesus has returned, leaving them grieved and confused 
about those that they've lost. What's happened to them? Death comes to us all, but we don't all face it the same way. The Christian faces the darkness of death differently, not without sorrow, but with the truth of God lighting a particular path. Inspired by the Spirit, the Apostle Paul is going to write to help comfort these young Christians and direct them to approach their grief through faith in the certainty of what has happened and in the hope of what will certainly come to pass. Let's look at verse 13 in chapter 4, just the first half of it. It says this, But we, speaking of Paul and his companions, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul doesn't want these young Christians to be ignorant about what has happened to those who have died or fallen asleep. A very common euphemism for death. It's been said that many of the Christian problems in the Christian life have a lot to do with ignorance of the truth of God. That seems odd to say, perhaps. But a lot of our problems come from ignorance. Ignorance of the truth. At least our struggles with them. Everyone has a view of the world and our lives in it. And our worldview is shaped by all kinds of influences. Our parents, the culture, our experiences, even our natural personality. And sadly, many of the explanations about the world and everything in it are full of very spiritual-sounding words. But even with Christians, we find that many of them are not found in the Bible. And that's never more evident than at funerals. If you just listen to the kinds of things that are said, So the fact that we are ignorant is no more true than when we talk about death and the afterlife. In the face of death, uh, it's very true that the world has very little to offer. And the same was back in the time that this letter was written. Historically, the Greeks, which Thessalonica is kind of a Greek city-state or region, if you will, city, They viewed the body as a prison for the soul. That's how the Greeks viewed it. I'm sure you're familiar with Greek mythology and all those kinds of things. But once released in their particular theology, the soul reluctantly departs to the darkness of Hades where the dead bemoan their existence. The Romans made some improvements on that. Little more to offer. Mercury, the messenger god, as you may remember from your junior high mythology days, would take the soul uh, to the river Styx, where you would pay a fee to the ferryman and he would cross you over to be judged. Heroes and warriors looked forward to the fields of Elysium, while ordinary citizens lived in another field. There was not really any true eternal damnation But those who had committed crimes against society were expected, kind of like in a purgatory way, to uh, be tortured until their debt was paid in full. That was the Roman view. 
Skeptical of Greek and Roman mythology, the Stoics of the day emphasized living each day as if it were your last because they believed basically the soul simply ceased to exist. So it just didn't matter. Today, if you just survey most Americans, for example, they mostly, the majority, believe in some kind of afterlife. The descriptions of that afterlife are somewhat varied, but most expect some level of peace, tranquility, and a reunion with relatives which begins this existence of bliss. It's interesting that everyone hopes in some kind of afterlife, but it's truly little more than silly traditions, false myths, or wishful thinking for the majority. And that might sound sad. What I'm trying to say is that the world doesn't have much to offer in terms of hope after death. At death, most of the world grieves without certainty. Without certain hope. And in our ignorance, Christians can often do the same and We struggle at times to provide answers as well because of our ignorance. And so in an attempt to help those who are grieving, we often say either the wrong thing the right way to make the grieving feel better with some sort of false hope, or we say the right thing the wrong way, making the grieving feel even worse. Paul writes that these people might have understanding of why and how the normal Christian grieves differently with an undeniable, reasonable, and certain hope. But the first thing that I think must be said is that yes, Christians should grieve differently, but what we also see Paul stating here is that Christians should actually grieve genuinely. And I think that sometimes we really struggle with that. Unusual grief doesn't mean unreal grief. Grieving is not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of bad theology or unbelief. On the contrary, I think using one's theology as an excuse not to grieve reveals a real misunderstanding of God's heart and His world. Sadly, I've seen many in the name of the sovereignty of God, say some of the dumbest things to people who are grieving. Well-intended, maybe even theologically accurate, but just unhelpful. Not allowing grief because we're scared of it. It's important to recognize Paul here doesn't say, do not grieve. He doesn't say, don't grieve too much. He simply says, do not grieve hopelessly. In other words, we need to embrace the permission to grieve genuinely because we know it is temporary. That's hugely important and very different than the world. We can grieve genuinely because we know it is temporary. And the best example of this kind of genuine grief with genuine hope is displayed no more clearly than by our Savior Jesus Christ. In John chapter 11, which is one of the most fascinating passages in the Gospel of John, we see this picture. 
And there's, there's three things that we often talk about, maybe four, in the Christian life. We talk about the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, the return of Jesus. And it seems like the incarnation is one other than Christmas time that kind of gets overshadowed. And Paul did preach the cross, and he did preach the resurrection, but I would say that we miss learning a lot about the Christian life because we fail to study the sinless life of Christ and, and how He lived and the example He set. In John chapter 11, maybe a passage you're familiar with, to read how Jesus is told that a good friend named Lazarus is sick. In response, after hearing this news, Jesus says, hey, this illness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God. That's His first response. Then, instead of leaving to go see His friend, the text says He decides to stay two days longer. Eventually says, hey, let's go see Lazarus. And along the way, some more news comes to him, and he is told that, quote, Lazarus has fallen asleep, meaning he has died. And when he arrives at Lazarus' home, the family is grieving, and his sisters are crying. In John chapter 11, I'll begin in verse 21, this is what they say to Jesus, grieving after the loss of their brother. Martha Lazarus' sister said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. What a common statement in times of great loss. God, where were you? It's very raw, very real. And it's a conversation with God, like with Jesus. Where were you, Jesus? Fascinating. Verse 22, but even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I know you can do something. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, verse 23, Martha reveals really what she understands that to mean. She says to him, oh, I know, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So he's talking about the end of the world. Yeah, I know, he's going to rise Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Verse 30 says, Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, that's his other sister, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet saying, Lord, if You had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And in the shortest verse in the Bible, and Jesus wept. That should strike you as strange. Jesus weeps. 
give you a little spoiler. Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead by Jesus. And Jesus knows this. Isn't that fascinating? He weeps knowing that in minutes he's going to raise him from the dead. He doesn't show up and go, guys, 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 guys. What's with all the crying? I'm going to raise him from the dead. Relax. He weeps. He genuinely weeps knowing what's going to happen. There's so much to learn in this chapter, certainly about God's sovereignty, about hope, about death, about resurrection, but there's a ton to learn about grief. Jesus grieves. The Son of God grieves. The sinless Savior grieves. Grief is not a sign of emotional weakness or unbelief. In fact, grief can be very Christ-like when it's founded on beliefs about Christ. Our grief should be genuine. Jesus could grieve genuinely because He knew who He was. The resurrection and the life. And He knew what He was going to do. Raise Lazarus. And we can grieve with the same confidence when we believe who Jesus is and what He has already done. Grieving genuinely with hope is only possible when we grieve faithfully. Paul writes in verse 14, says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. He says, don't grieve like the world. Don't grieve hopelessly. And then in verse 14, he says, why? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. See, when we talk about grieving faithfully, we're talking about grieving with faith in Christ. Not just grieving strongly or courageously, but with faith in Christ. And we're talking about faith in Christ. We're talking about trusting in something that is positively true about Jesus. Something that He has done in real history. Namely, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That is the truth that distinguishes Christians from all other religions. The resurrection is the key. Faith in this fact is the foundation of Christianity and the foundation of our hope. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus requires faith. And I say that because we didn't experience these events in person. I didn't touch Jesus like Thomas. I didn't see Jesus walking around like Peter. Faith comes as a result of 
believing the external testimony of witnesses partnered with the internal testimony of the Spirit. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Empty traditions bring no comfort in death. Wishful thinking brings no comfort in death. Clever myths brings no comfort in death. Comfort comes from certainty, but there is no certainty apart from faith. When grief strikes us, Christians alone have or can have certainty about the future because Christians alone have a faith-filled certainty about something in the past or someone in the past. The writer of Ecclesiastes is right in that death certainly makes everyone look inward for they know it's the end of everyone. But it should also make us look backward. Backward to Jesus who dealt with death who faced death victoriously. Great loss that comes from death certainly makes everything feel hopeless. This is why Paul is talking about hope because these people feel hopeless. What are we going to put our hope in? What are we going to put our trust in? When C.S. Lewis experienced the loss of his wife, he said, death of a beloved is an amputation. Without doubt, the pain of such an amputation is shocking. Nothing ever feels the same. There's some part of you missing that was there before. If you listen to amputees, they talk about feeling as if that arm or leg is actually still there. But worse perhaps than the shock of the loss is the long-term hopeless grief that comes from staring at the missing limb, wishing for it to be restored. Paul says that we will rise and be restored because Jesus has risen and promised to restore. That we hope tempor- or grieve temporarily. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he wrote that As we see our earthly homes destroyed, which given enough time, we all will see, if not from some disease, just from age and things wearing down. But he says, as that earthly home is destroyed, we hope in something beyond this life. That we walk by faith, not by sight. Trusting in the truth of what God has said and not what we see or don't see. Resurrection, the idea of it seems quite impossible. Hard to believe because we've never seen it. This is what Paul, I think, pushes on a little bit in Romans 4 when he talks about Abraham's faith. There's a phrase in there that's so incredible. So Abraham, the patriarch of Judaism and kind of the father of the story of God that led to ultimately... Um, the son of Judah, his grandson that led to Christ. Abraham uh, was uh, nearly 100 years old. His wife is 90 plus, well stricken in years. And he's told he's going to be the father of a mighty nation. You're going to have kids you know, that are number the stars in the sky 
And Abraham's like, really? Because what does he see, right? That, that seems really impossible. I mean, I think my wife's still cute and stuff, but we're old and broken and we got no kids. It hasn't worked for this long. Why would it work now? It says in Romans chapter 4, verse 18, this phrase, which I love, in hope he believed against hope. In hope he believed against hope. That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, implying that maybe he should have, which was good as dead, as he was about 100 years old. That's good to know, right? You're wondering when you're as good as dead. About 100. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. She hadn't had kids up to this point. What does it say? No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that he was able to do it. No, that God was able to do what he had promised. He hoped against hope. He looked out and saw, like, this doesn't make sense by what I see. Resurrection's like that. But we hope in what God has said, not in what we see. He hoped against hope in God's Word. The Word of the resurrection reveals that this life is not all there is. The Word of the resurrection reveals that Jesus is the Lord of the dead and the living. The Word of the resurrection reveals that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Word of the resurrection reveals that those who have fallen asleep have not gone away as much as they have just gone ahead. That's the Word that we need to put our faith in and trust in that we might grieve faithfully. But Jesus rose from the dead and He did reveal our grief to be temporary. So we grieve genuinely and we grieve faithfully, trusting not only in what God has already done in Christ, but also hoping in what Christ is going to do. If you take a look at verse 15, Paul writes this. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that be Jesus, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. Do you think Paul expected Christ to return in his time? You bet he did. Should we expect that? Absolutely. Paul appeals to the Word of the Lord, he says, which can really only be a reference to Jesus' own words about His resurrection and His return, which Matthew in particular is full of. In other words, Jesus said so. Jesus said so. 
It's interesting how much of the world likes to embrace the moral teachings of Jesus, but few are familiar or at least want to consider what Jesus taught regarding His resurrection and His return. In these few powerful verses, Paul gives us the briefest of summaries about how the world ends. There's a lot of theology in here, and I'll just address some of it. But there's basically four things that we ought focus on. First, is that we ought to expect that there's going to be a return. Like we are grieving expectantly here. We are expecting certain things to happen, certainly. We expect there's going to be a return. Verse 16, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. The return of Jesus is not going to be a mystery to the world. Be very clear. Jesus will return. And He is not coming the second time as a marginalized peasant. He's not coming as a humble servant. He is coming as a conquering king ready for the final battle. Victorious. You read the opening of Revelation and you read the kind of picture that is envisioned of Christ's return. It's powerful. Jesus is returning. We should expect His return. And the loss that comes through death is one of those times where you're shaken awake to go, whoa, this life is not all there is. There's an end. And I pray that end is this afternoon, which would be fantastic. I'm not sure we all believe that, and I'll address that in a second. But first, we should expect there will be a return. And second, we should expect that there will be a resurrection. What does that mean? Well, this is where Paul presses really hard into those who have been lost, those who have died in Christ. He says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the very end of verse 16. The dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus will return and He will bring those who have died believing in Him to life again. Now, their spirits, the souls are very much alive now. That's why Paul can say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But there will be a time, a moment where the dead of Christ will rise and they will be reunited with their glorified bodies. God intends not only to redeem us spiritually, but to redeem us physically and to fix this entire world and restore it all back to the beauty of the garden in the beginning in all perfection where He is present and dwelling with His people. But it says the dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus will return. And there will be a resurrection. We should expect that. Our certainty is that it has happened. So we can trust it will happen again. But in verse 17, the third thing we can expect is what I'm sure you've heard of before, the rapture. Now, 
how you understand that word is probably as diverse as the colors on the rainbow because it has become a very um, interesting point to have all kinds of creative theology built around it. But it says in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, so those who are still alive that are Christians, will be caught up, there you go, there's your word, caught up together with them. So Jesus is coming, the dead in Christ rise to meet Him, He keeps coming, and there's a rapture of those who are alive, and we'll meet the Lord in the air. We're all flying with Jesus. Fantastic. The caught up is that idea where we get the word rapture. And everyone takes this word to go, okay, well, the church is going to be raptured. So you've, you've seen the uh, left behind, the uh, um, you know, Kirk Cameron movies that are just, I've never seen them, so I don't know. I could make fun of them, but I don't know. But the idea of the church, you know, planes crashing as the pilot is raptured and uh, cars crashing, like that is one view. Like the church is raptured and then they're floating with Jesus as all this tribulation's going on. And some people say, oh no, actually Christians enter the tribulation a little bit and they're raptured in the middle of it. And then some say, no, Christians go all the way through the tribulation. And they're raptured. I'm not talking about that today. We'll probably get into that in 2 Thessalonians. But there is a rapture. There is a catching up at some point, whether it's beginning, middle, end, or not, whatever. They are caught up in the air with Jesus. Personally, I believe Jesus keeps coming down, but we'll talk about that at a different time. But there is a rapture. And it's interesting that the word that is used for this caught up is it speaks less of like, yes, Jesus, take me away. And more of Jesus taking you. Almost as if reluctantly. Almost as if it's hard to let go of this world. And I know many of us believe, you know what, if Jesus came right now. But I think a lot of us go like, well, Jesus, just wait until I see my grandkids. Or wait until this. Uh, wait. We're actually a lot more attached to this world than we think. So Jesus returning is like, no, 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 I'm, gonna, I'm taking you out of something that is actually not great. That you might be present with me in true greatness. It was interesting, like, oh, like, oh, oh Jesus, no, I don't, I'm not quite ready. Pray that we are ready, that we are excited when Jesus returns. Because He will return and He's going to bring all of those brothers and sisters and family members that have lost. And we're going to join Him as He takes us in this amazing reunion together. And that's the fourth and best part of all. We can expect a return and we can expect a resurrection and we can expect a rapture. We should also expect there to be a restoration. It says that we will meet the Lord in the air. And so we... We and all those we have lost will always be with the Lord. Oh, what an amazing phrase. We'll never not be with the Lord. The one who is the resurrection and the life. There will no longer be any sense of loss. There'll never be loss again. 
but we will always be together, but more importantly, we'll always be with the Lord. And that's why we can say, oh, they, they haven't just gone away, they've just gone ahead. We will be with Jesus forever. And one of my favorite verses, and somewhat of the inspiration for part of the name of our church, Revelation 21.5, has a loud voice come from the throne saying, Behold, I make all things new. You know, those who are grieving with the loss that comes from death need to hear that. They don't need to hear fanciful myths or creative words that you think are going to help. They need to hear truth. That there is a resurrection and there is a final restoration. God has declared that one day He is going to set all things right. I don't know if you've read The Lord of the Rings. I'm sure you've probably watched the films. Shame on you. I'm an English teacher. You should have read the books. You should still read them. They're fantastic, but the books are pretty good. Minus The Hobbit. Don't watch that movie. Read the book. The Lord of the Rings, particularly the return of the king, Tolkien describes how evil has just um, been vanquished and all things have been set right. But the way he describes it is so awesome. It's best captured by uh, Samwise Gamgee. Sam, who I think is the hero of the story. We'll just leave it there. It's not Frodo. No, it's Sam. But Samwise Gamgee makes an, an interesting statement at the end, after the ring... Okay, I'm going to ruin the story for you. Sorry, but it's been enough time. came out in the 60s, right? I mean, it's been around. But after the ring was destroyed at Mount Doom, Sam wakes up from his sleep, surprised that he's alive and surprised to see old Gandalf. And this is what he says. Maybe you've heard this before. He says, Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? That statement is, is pretty profound because it's very different than asking whether good things are going to become true. It's asking whether sad things are going to become untrue. You know, more than anything, death reveals to everyone believe it or not, that there is something wrong with the world. I've heard it said at funerals at times. It was like, oh, that's just it's natural. It's just the way. Like it, if nothing else, it seems very unnatural. And depending on the, the person, the individual that's died, if they're a 100-year-old grandfather, and you kind of go like, well, I guess it's natural if it's a six-year-old little girl. That's not what you're thinking. You're thinking something's wrong. This is not right. Something's broken. That's what death does to us. It's a place that's filled with sadness or reveals that the world is a place filled with sadness. That the world is cursed by something and I would say the Bible says it's sin. And that this world is groaning as it waits for redemption. But in that final restoration at the return of Christ, those sad things will be made untrue. And Christians live differently and face death differently believing that. 
There will be a day when the curse will be rolled back. A day when the world is changed and fully restored. And this is why Paul writes in the final verse of chapter 14, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We also need to grieve communally. Part of grieving communally is like, remember, there's a resurrection. Remember, there's a rapture. Remember, Jesus is returning and He's going to restore all things. I need to be reminded of that, especially at times of great loss and pain and suffering. You need to be reminded of that, especially at great times of loss, pain, and suffering. And we also need to be reminded that it's okay to grieve. And some of the best words that we can say are not words at all. They're just arms. Job's friends did a really horrible job when they started to talk. But you'll notice that they spent time with Job, one of the most uh, servants of God that suffered probably uh, the greatest in the Bible. They spent seven days, I think, with him sitting there quietly. That was the best way to minister to Job. We need to grieve communally, and part of the grieving communally is to be encouraged by the words that Paul just wrote, that we don't grieve without hope. A certain hope. Be encouraged that this life is not all there is, that grief is temporary, and hope in Christ. Did you know the first question we teach in our kids' catechism downstairs is just that? What is our only hope in life and death? Didn't know if you knew your children being taught that? I believe it's from the Heidelberg. What is our only hope in life and death? The answer is simply this, that we are not our own, but belong to God, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus? Listen to His own words when He raised Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? So do you believe this? Will you believe this? Will you believe this today if you don't believe it? Because this life is not all there is and It won't take but a moment for you to realize that as you experience loss yourself. For the Christian, there is hope even in death because there is life after death. And we find our hope in Jesus because He is the only one. He is the only one who has ever lived who can walk us through death and the only one who can walk us back to life again. Put your trust in Him and not what you see in our Lord and Savior who conquered sin, Satan, and death that you might live in His presence eternally. Let's pray together.